There are no American troops anywhere near us that I can find out. And we are les enfants perdus and glad of it. Our great American general simply put the black orphan in a basket, set it on the doorstep of the French, pulled the bell, and went away. I said this to a French colonel with an English-spoken-here sign on him, and he said, Welcome, little black baby. Colonel William Hayward, 369th Infantry Regiment, 93rd Division, France, 1918. Hey folks, this is Mike, and welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 65, Champagne, Les Enfants Perdus, 93rd Division Operations on the Champagne Front. As always, let's begin with the admin news. Shout out, this episode goes to Jason, who signed up as a patron on Patreon. Thank you very much, sir. Patrons on Patreon have early access to all new episodes, as well as operations maps, transcripts, and bibliographies for those episodes. They will also have other perks, such as not-yet-released episodes and being able to submit a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. Patrons also have the possibility of naming a battle they'd like to hear covered on the show, if you are able and interested in becoming a patron of the BFWWP, point your internets to patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. And you can sign up there. You will only be charged when an episode is released and your patronage is greatly appreciated. If you're really enjoying the show, there are other ways to support the BFWWP as well. You can donate through PayPal. Simply go to firstworldwarpodcast.com and click on the PayPal button there. You can also really help the podcast by submitting a review on iTunes. In fact, this is one of the greatest ways to support the podcast, according to the folks who read Apple's tea leaves. And this is free. Simply submit a review through iTunes and you have done your bit for the BFWWP. Another thing you can do is talk us up. Tell folks you know about the podcast. Your coworkers at your next Zoom meeting, your family, your UPS delivery guy or girl, or FedEx. Tell your dad about this podcast. I mean, really, if this isn't a dad podcast, then what is? Spread the World War I word, y'all. All right, back to the front. In the last narrative episode, we left three regiments in the American 93rd Division at the point where they were assigned to the French 4th Army at the end of the summer in 1918. These regiments were the 369th, the 371st, and the 372nd Infantry Regiments, and are the ones we'll focus on in this episode. The 370th Infantry, 
formerly known as the 8th Illinois National Guard, was assigned to the French 59e Division d'Infanterie, itself part of the French 10th Army. They will get their own episode as they took part in the Waz N Offensive that was part of the great Allied counteroffensives of 1918. After completing their rushed training under the terribly racist and dangerous conditions back in the U.S., the infantry regiments of the 93rd Division Provisional were shipped overseas along with hundreds of thousands of other doughboys headed over there. The first regiment of the newly formed 93rd Division to arrive in France was the 15th New York National Guard, which, upon arrival on French soil in January 1918, found itself federalized as the much blander-sounding 369th Infantry Regiment. After being given over to the French Army, the doughboys of the 369th were serving in front-line trenches by April 1918. The 371st Infantry arrived in April and was sent to the front line in the Verdun sector almost as soon as they got off the boats. The 372nd was in the front line trenches of the Aragon Forest and the Butte de Vauquois by early June. The 369th found itself part of the Allied defense at Chateau Thierry and then attached to the French 4th Army for the Second Battle of the Marne that began in mid-July. In August, the 369th was formally integrated into the French 161st Infantry Division. The 371st and 372nd were integrated into the French 157th Infantry Division not long after, wearing the red hand patch that the Black Doughboys would come to be known for. Now part of the French 4th Army, these American soldiers came under the command of one General Henri Gohol, the one-armed Lion of Africa, and after the Second Marne, the Lion of Champagne. As far as French generals go, Gohol was an outlier. A brigadier general by the time he was just 32, Gohol served in the French colonies as a young officer, doing time in the Sudan, Niger, Chad, Algeria, Mauritania, and then Morocco. The war in 1914 saw him as a division commander in the Argonne, and soon after, a corps commander in the Massige sector in next-door Champagne. Later becoming the youngest French general, the bearded Henri Gohol was transferred from his Champagne front to lead the 70,000-strong French force that fought at Gallipoli. There, on June 30, 1915, a Turkish shell came down next to Gohol and exploded. The explosion threw him over a wall, shredding his right arm and smashing his legs. The right arm would shortly be amputated. Within five months, Gohol was back in command of his French 4th Army in his Champagne sector. With only a six-month posting as resident general in Morocco in 1917 breaking it up, from December 1915 on until the end of the war, Gohol would command his beloved 4th Army in the Champagne region. This was his battleground. A dynamic leader, though not without criticism, as we shall see. He led from the front, and after his death in 1946, he would be the rare French general to be buried together 
with the many soldiers he had left in the Champagne killing fields. He rests with his men at Navarian Farm today. When the three African-American regiments became part of the French 4th Army, General Gohol was planning his part of the upcoming Franco-American push planned for late September. While the American 1st Army was to break through the enemy lines in the Meuse region, the French 4th Army was to clear the River N area of German forces and work towards cutting off the Argonne Forest from the west. French forces were then to link up with American forces at Grand Pré, north of the Argonne. Gohol had three infantry corps, and from left to right, they were the 2nd, the 9th, and the 38th. The 38th Corps would be the one working to clear the eastern end line and would be responsible for the Champagne Front up to the western edge of the Argonne Forest. The Buffalo Soldiers of the AEF 92nd Division, working with the Groupement de Ronde, whom we visited back in episode 55, would fall under this Corps command. 9th Corps, in the middle of the 4th Army's front, would be tasked with breaking the German line ahead of them. The 161st Infantry Division, of which the American 369th Harlem Rattlers were a part, were part of the 9th Corps, commanded by French General Noël Garnier du Plessis. So was the 157th Infantry Division, with its American 371st and 372nd Infantry Regiments. From its section of front line, the French 9th Corps, being in the 4th Army Front's middle, would be assaulting the eastern end of the Champagne Plateau. This area of the Champagne region is that of flat, rolling farmland with low ridges and hills, and some small woods and copses sprinkled throughout. Two streams cross this land, west to east. Looking from the French line to the north, we have the Dormoise, and then a few kilometers up, the Alain. The Germans, of course, had long since taken advantage of every bit of high ground and had wired in the valleys and villages for maximum defensive capabilities. To locate the German front line, we can start with the village of Cernay-en-Dormoise. Cernay is spelled C-E-R-N-A-Y, and if you type that into Google Maps, you'll get five or six options. Choose the one with a D in it. Cernay-en-Domois. South of Cernay, the German first line ran in a rough southwest to northeast direction. To the southwest, the line ran on to the Butte de Menil, where the Germans held this hill in a salient, and the Butte would be one of the tasks of the 2nd Moroccan Division. To the northeast, past Cernay, the line continued on across the Champagne Plateau until it ran off into the Argonne Forest. Behind this first line lay the village of Ripon to the west of Cernay, and this would have to be cleared by the troops of the 161st DI. Behind this line lay a second line of defensive positions, located on the Cratreuil upland heights overlooking the valley of the river Dormoise. If the first line was breached, the French would have to cross the stream clear Fontaine-en-Dombois, and then work to clear the low ridge, all while under German fire from that very ridge. 
Just behind this second line, the Germans had yet another line running across the top of Bellevue Signal Ridge, where the highest point of Hill 188 had been turned into an earthen fortress. Behind this second line, German defenses were more spread out, and while not as developed as the first three lines, the villages had been turned into a defense-in-depth network of supportive redoubts. Even after breaking through the three German lines, the Poilus and the Doughboys would still face a sticky web of villages that would draw them in and then need to be cleared out individually. Ninth Corps' mission was clearly laid out in the orders issued for the 157th Infantry Division by its commander, Brigadier General Mariano Goybe. We can read and hear these orders thanks to Frank Roberts's well-written The American Foreign Legion, Black Soldiers of the 93rd in World War I. Quote, A breaking and exploitation battle will be engaged in on the Champagne Front. This corps, including the 2nd Moroccan Division, the 161st DI, and 157th DI, will take part in it. The 2nd Moroccan DI, to the left, the 161st DI, to the right, will have a breaking mission. The 157th DI in AC Reserve, Army Corps Reserve, has, in principle, an exploitation mission. Nevertheless, it can receive, during the action, a quite different mission. The 9th Corps is framed on the right by the 38th Corps and to the left by the 2nd Corps. Successive Objectives Execution of the Attack by the Rupture Divisions The attack will be made up to the second objective included, under protection of a rolling barrage. Before attacking a new objective, rolling barrage will be stopped so that assaulting units may be put in order. Beyond the second objective, the attack will progress supported by the accompanying artillery. It is no longer a question of time. Each division will progress for itself. The attack on the third objective will take place at an hour fixed by the command. It will do its best to reach the brown line in order to have sufficient advance in front of the second objective. Unquote. The night of the 25th of September, after weeks of new assignments, endless night marches, and long days of training and prepping for battle, the Poilus and the black doughboys of Gouraud's French 4th Army could not miss the furious artillery bombardment that began at 11 p.m. that night. From the French 4th Army's left flank all the way east over to the banks of the River Meuse north of Verdun, French and American artillery pummeled the German trench lines, known positions, crossroads, and supply depots. André Simonet, a French officer attached to the American 371st Infantry Regiment, remarked later that, quote, that night, an artillery bombardment began the like of which I have never heard. The thunder and roar of the massed artillery shook the earth, and the sky was alight with the flashes of the guns. It was wondrous. It was insanity, and the fever of it gripped us all. Unquote. Despite the noise, the 369th Sergeant Hannibal Spatz Davis described as, quote, being inside a huge iron barrel, totally enclosed, 
with 100,000 madmen beating on the outside with sledgehammers, unquote. Exhausted doughboys reaching their respective jump-off positions still collapsed on the ground and promptly fell asleep. The next morning, the assault formations of the 4th Army went over the top, with the 161st DI among those ranks. Inside the division's front, from Olu to Ville-sur-Tourbe, the 163rd Regiment d'Infanterie held the left, and the 363rd Regiment d'Infanterie manned the right. The Harlem Rattlers of the 369th Infantry followed behind by anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 meters. When the Poilus ahead broke through the enemy lines, the Doughboys would rush through them to exploit the rupture. It was a morning of fog and heavy mist. Combat was quick and fierce at first, with the first German trenches seized by 725 the morning of the 26th and the beleaguered enemy running in retreat. Under an hour later, the Allied troops were on the second line, but the fog was burning off around them and German machine gunners could see them clearly. By mid-morning, the advance was stalled as German planes were swooping down on the French and Americans in terrifying strafing runs. As the Poilus of the 163rd advanced, a gap began to open up in the front-line trace between them and the neighboring Moroccans to the left. On his own, U.S. Army Major Lorillard Spencer led his 3rd Battalion of the 369th forward to close up the line. In doing so, he put his battalion on a line with the village of Ripon, which Spencer ordered an assault on. The village was quickly taken, with German artillerymen caught by the surprise of the attack and slaughtered in place before they could react. 77mm guns were seized, along with machine guns and several prisoners, among them a battalion commander. The commander of the 161st DI, General Georges Lebouc, was elated at his Americans' initiative and ferocity. Major Spencer and his third of the 369th pushed up some four kilometers with the Allied advance, coming to the Dormoise stream under the eyes of the German second line. The doughboys crossed the stream and entered marshy ground on the other side under fire, wading into pre-sighted kill zones. Major Spencer walked forward as an example to his rattlers until an enemy machine gun stitched six bullets into his leg and dropped him. Captain Lewis Shaw took over the battalion, remembering later that, quote, few of us expected to come out whole, unquote. Corporal Horace Pippin of K Company, 3rd Battalion, could attest to Captain Shaw's premonition coming true. His platoon was enfiladed by German machine gun fire as they neared the swamp. Suddenly, Pippin's platoon was down to the four or five men with him in a deep shell hole. In an amazing act of gallantry, Pippin and one other man crossed the swamp to take out the enemy nest. Crawling through low ground at the foot of a small knoll, Pippin set his rifle on the German gunner and then shot him. The corporal, a budding artist, proved yet again that he was a solid fighter. He'd been in the trenches since April. The Germans lit up anyone in the marsh with machine gun fire. A platoon from Company K was struck down as across the open area, leaving wounded men screaming in the bloody swamp. 
A Corporal Elmer Earl then ran repeatedly into the marsh to pull wounded out of the muck, gave them first aid, and then began carrying them back to safer positions. All of this was done in the open, with bullets ripping up the ground around him. Corporal Earl was later awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions that day. Another Distinguished Service Cross later awarded for actions that day was Private Elmer McCowan of 3rd Battalion's Company K, who ran out into the marshy ground on the north bank of the Dormoise to pull out more of the wounded getting chopped up there by the German machine guns dug into the low ridge above. He was hit with gas and yet continued to go after his fellow soldiers. This is what the DSC was for. However, McCowan also took part in another episode that also showed his incredible bravery, and we are lucky to have his own words on the matter. Quote, On September 26, the captain asked me to carry dispatches. The Germans pumped machine gun bullets at me all the way, but I made the trip and back safely. Then I was sent out again. As I started with the message, the captain yelled to bring him back a can of coffee. He was joking but I didn't know it at the time. Being a foot messenger, I had some time ducking those German bullets. Those bullets seemed very sociable, but I didn't care to meet up with them, so I kept right on traveling on high gear. None touched my skin, though some skinned pretty close. On the way back, it seemed the whole war was turned on me. One bullet passed through my trousers, and it made me hop, step, and jump pretty lively. I saw a shell hole six feet deep. Take it from me, I dented another six feet when I plunged into it hard. In my fist, I held the captain's can of coffee. When I climbed out of the shell hole and started running again, a bullet clipped a hole in the can and the coffee started to spill. But I turned around, stopped a second, looked the Kaiser in the face, and held up the can of coffee with my finger plugging up the hole to show the Germans they were fooled. Just then, another bullet hit the can, and another finger had to act as stopgap. It must have been good luck that saved my life, because bullets were picking at my clothes, and so many hit the can that at the end, all my fingers were hugging it to keep the coffee in. I jumped into shell holes, wriggled along the ground, and got back safely. And what do you think? When I got back into our own trenches, I stumbled and spilled the coffee. Unquote. Captain Frederick Cobb's 2nd Battalion of the 369th advanced through the recently liberated ground right behind the French regiments and the 3rd Battalion. The more they moved up, the more shellfire they received, and by nightfall, they had taken a dozen killed with nothing to show for it. Later that night, 2nd Battalion lost an entire machine gun platoon when an impromptu ambush was caught in the German wire. The battalion also lost communications with the rear, and so they were late for an attack the next morning on the next village up from Ripon, named Fontaine-en-Dermois. 2nd Battalion was supposed to pass through 3rd Battalion and then take that village. 3rd Battalion, now already exhausted from the previous day, cleared out the village and was stopped north of it by heavy German fire. 2nd Battalion continued moving up. The heavy fire was coming from that third line of German defenses, the one that sat on Bellevue Signal Ridge. 
General Goho's staff ordered that the 161st needed to aim itself on that ridge in order to take it, clear out the nearby Fermbussy and Petit Rosier, and then orient towards Grand Pré north of the Argonne Forest in order to more quickly link up with American forces. As the doughboys of the 3rd of the 369th dug in at the foot of Bellevue Signal Ridge, the 157th DI was called up to come and exploit the gains made before momentum was lost. Bellevue Ridge, described in Frank Roberts's The American Foreign Legion as a beehive of trenches and fortifications that was packed with machine guns and barbed wire, was peaked by Hill 188, the highest point on it. The 371st led the division with the men of the 372nd marching behind them. Behind the 372nd were elements of the French 333rd Infantry Regiment, the third unit in the division. As the 157th came up, its advance route was Bellevue Ridge, Boussy Farm beyond, and then on through the villages of Ardoy and Montfaucol. The Red Hand Division would be pushing almost north-northeast, largely in step with the 161st. In the evening, however, the orders changed as a new gap had opened between the 2nd Moroccans on the left and the 161st DI. So the 371st shifted its movement to contact to an almost due north direction. Bellevue Ridge would be hit by both French divisions on the 28th. The 371st would assault the left half of Hill 188 at the ridge's western end, and the 372nd would attack the right half. The French 163rd Infantry and the 2nd Battalion of the Harlem Rattlers would strike the very eastern end of Bellevue Ridge. On the left, just past the ridge's west end, the 2nd Moroccan Division would also be pushing. The attack went off early the next morning under thick fog, rain, and a storm of German gas and high-explosive shells. By this point, the Moroccans, the Black Doughboys, and the French Poilus were now entering their third day of heavy combat operations. Losses had been heavy in all units but the 371st and the 372nd. Everyone was exhausted from fighting or marching or both and little food was on hand. On the right, the rattlers of the 369th attacked with their French comrades in arms, and they clawed their way up the low ridge. Around 9 a.m., the Germans launched three brutal counterattacks, one right after the other, with the first attack hitting the doughboys. Losses quickly mounted, but the three attacks were each shot to pieces. In immediate retaliation, the Harlem Hellfighters and the Poilus on either side of them renewed their own assaults and took their part of Bellevue Ridge. Losses were indeed heavy. Aid stations just behind the front line reported up to 400 wounded from the ranks of the 161st DI, both French and American. 1st Battalion of the 369th, under Major Arthur Little, was called up to support the 2nd Battalion. On the left side of the ridge, 
The men of the 371st and 372nd Infantry advanced under the same shellfire as their brethren in the 369th. The Carolina draftees of the 371st formed the 157th DI's left front, while the amalgamated National Guardsmen of the 372nd made up the right front. They went over the top under a deluge of incoming German shells, with the ground bursting upwards in front of and among them as they advanced over the shattered Champagne land. Soon after, French shells began coming down on them, forcing everyone remaining to ground while the advance companies desperately fired artillery signal flares into the air. When the friendly shells stopped, officers and NCOs rallied their men and the attack continued. The 371st 1st Battalion attacked up the left half of Hill 188, with the 3rd Battalion of the 372nd taking on the right half. On the left side of the hill, Company C under Captain Wharton got through the wire. As the Black Doughboys advanced, with their white officers in the lead, they saw movement in the trenches up ahead. It was the Germans. They were coming out and standing on their trench parapet, hands up in the air. The intake of prisoners had been steady over the past couple of days. Many Germans knew their country's war efforts were finished, and they had no wish to die needlessly. The Americans advanced towards them cautiously. They were right to do so. The American troops were just about 100 meters away when the enemy suddenly jumped back into their trenches, manned their machine guns, and opened fire. They couldn't miss. There was nowhere for the doughboys to go. Company C was decimated in just a few seconds. B and D companies were also caught in the fire. It was here that a junior NCO, one Corporal Freddie Stowers, then stepped up when the company's leaders were either dead or wounded. Quote, Faced with incredible enemy resistance, Corporal Stowers took charge, setting such a courageous example of personal bravery and leadership that he inspired his men to follow him in the attack. With extraordinary heroism and complete disregard of personal danger, under devastating fire, he crawled forward, leading his squad toward an enemy machine gun nest, which was causing heavy casualties to his company. After fierce fighting, the machine gun position was destroyed and the enemy soldiers were killed. Displaying great courage and intrepidity, Corporal Stowers continued to press the attack against a determined enemy. While crawling forward and urging his men to continue the attack on a second trench line, he was gravely wounded by machine gun fire. Although Corporal Stowers was mortally wounded, he pressed forward, urging on the members of his squad until he died. Inspired by the heroism and display of bravery of Corporal Stowers, his company continued the attack against incredible odds, contributing to the capture of Hill 188 and causing heavy enemy casualties. Corporal Stowers' conspicuous gallantry, extraordinary heroism, and supreme devotion to his men were well above and beyond the call of duty, follow the finest traditions of military service, and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Corporal Stowers would never have lived to see the Medal of Honor he was put in for after the war, as he was obviously killed in combat. Had he lived, however, he might never have seen it either, as the award paperwork for this junior black NCO was lost 
until 1987. It took seven decades, but the Army and the U.S. government made things right. In 1988, then-U.S. President George H.W. Bush bestowed the Medal of Honor on Freddie Stowers' now-elderly sisters. Also in action that day was Private Burton Holmes, a shell-shot gunner also with C Company of the 371st. Holmes was sending out lead like it was nobody's business. His Distinguished Service Cross Citation tells the story. For extraordinary heroism in action while serving near Hill 188, France, 28 September 1918, after he had been badly wounded and his automatic rifle had been put out of commission, Private Holmes returned to his company under extremely heavy machine gun and shell fire, and taking another automatic rifle, went back and reopened fire on the enemy. While thus engaged, he was killed. Officers put in for the Medal of Honor for Private Holmes, but the recommendation was turned down post-war. This was likely in keeping with the maintenance of the Jim Crow status quo. Hill 188 was cleared and secured later that afternoon after heavy fighting, and Bussy Farm was seized by the 3rd of the 371st. Everyone dug in where they were for the night. The black doughboys and poilus of the French 157th and 161st Divisions hunkered down in shell-blasted terrain that had seen years of brutal warfare, and the troops' mental state was likely beginning to resemble the land around them. They had now been in combat for three solid days, and all of the units involved had left a carpet of dead and wounded behind them. How thin is the line between the quick and the dead, Sergeant Spatz Davis wrote. Everywhere around him, men were collapsing dead, dying, or wounded, or being blown to pieces by incoming artillery shells. It didn't matter whose shells they were. Combat was devolving into little mini-wars taking place on the battlefield as small groups of survivors took on the enemy under a junior leader and attempted to bring the fight to the German army before them. Junior NCOs, all of them black, would prove themselves adaptive leaders and formidable fighters in the Champagne. Corporal Horace Pippin was one such man. On the 28th, Pippin and a battle buddy joined I Company as K Company of the 3rd of the 369th was so shattered they couldn't find anyone from it in their sector. They attacked in short rushes from shell hole to shell hole in the lunar battlefield as German artillery shells rained down ceaselessly. A machine gun nest up ahead halted their advance. Pippin and his buddy split up, one going one way, one going another. The machine gunner couldn't get them both at the same time, so whoever wasn't the target would be the one to shoot the German. The gunner aimed at Pippin and fired. The corporal was hit in the shoulder and knocked back into a muddy shell hole. Minutes later, his buddy reported he'd taken out the German. He patched up Pippin and then kept moving forward. Pippin lay in the shell hole for hours until some poilus came by. One stopped to speak with Pippin, only to be shot through the head and then collapse on top of the wounded doughboy. The rain kept coming down, and the shell hole continued filling. 
It was common for wounded men to drown in shell holes because they could not lift themselves out. I did not care what or where I went, he said afterwards. I asked God to help me, and he did so. And that is the way I came through that terrible and hellish place. For the whole entire battlefield was hell, so it was no place for any human being to be. He was pulled out by French troops the next morning, and his part in the war came to an end. On the 29th, the remaining men in the Harlem Rattlers 2nd Battalion cleared out the eastern end of Bellevue Signal Ridge. They would soon be amalgamated into the 1st Battalion, which passed through them to continue the assault. There simply weren't enough men left standing in 2nd Battalion to constitute a battalion command. The 29th was a clear and cool day weather-wise, a rarity in those last weeks of the war, especially in that area of France. The rattlers of the 1st Battalion, 369th Infantry, advanced two miles under heavy fire to reach their front-line positions and from there attacked. Their first target was a kilometer away, a ruined village named Sechaux. Once that place was cleared, the advance was to continue another two to three kilometers to Les Rosiers Fermes, a farm complex north of a patch of woods. German gas shells rained down at 2.30 that afternoon, adding another dimension of hellishness to the battlefield. Despite that, three American companies attacked in 15-minute intervals at 3 p.m. that afternoon, attacking downhill from Bellevue Ridge and across open ground toward the village. German fire was heavy as the Americans came towards them in short rushes over the fields, hunching low and even crawling as flat as possible when the whizzing bullets came too close. I used to think that going out on a raiding party was quite risky and daring, but it is like eating pie alongside of going over in an attack because the enemy are looking for you. Private Merritt Molson wrote to his mother of that day as he lay a patient in a French hospital later on. C Company broke into Sechaux by storming it directly. D Company came up on its right. B Company waited outside the village on the left flank, ready to rush in when called. Fighting was savage. In the ruins of the buildings, combat became close and personal. Rifles were replaced with fists and knives. The Harlem Doughboys killed almost every single German soldier they found in the village. The Germans fought back just as savagely. At one point, an artillery crew fired their 77mm gun into the oncoming doughboys at point-blank range. The remnants of the 2nd of the 369th joined the line in the village, and later two lost companies of the 372nd Infantry joined them as well. Sergeant Ira Payne of Washington, D.C., was from the 372nd and was in the fight for Seychelles. Quote, During the fighting at Seychelles, the Germans were picking off the men in my platoon from behind a bush. The Germans had several machine guns behind that bush and kept up a deadly fire in spite of our rifle fire directed at the bush. We did our best to stop those machine guns, but the German aim became so accurate that they were picking off five of my men every minute. We couldn't stand for that. So I decided I would get that little machine gun nest myself, and I went after it. I left our company, 
detoured, and by a piece of luck got behind the bush. I got my rifle into action and knocked off two of those German machine gunners. That ended it. The other Germans couldn't stand so much excitement. The Bosch surrendered, and I took them into our trenches as prisoners. Unquote. Another 372nd man, Private William Braxton of the Regimental Machine Gun Company, took charge when a group of Germans broke into American lines. His Croix de Guerre citation reads as follows. An enemy party, having filtered through his platoon and attacked same in rear, Private Braxton displayed marked gallantry in opening fire on the enemy and killing one and wounding several others, finally dispersing the entire party. Braxton later stated, The men who stuck by me when death stared them in their faces deserve just as much credit as I. I was only temporary leader of the men. Seychelles was cleared in a couple of hours, and afterwards Major Little's 1st Battalion could advance no farther that day. The Americans held the ruins through the night under fire from the Germans and with the French battalions on either side of them several hundred meters back. A ration party arrived with French bread during the night, and this was the first food the men had received in 18 hours. To the west of the 369th, the 372nd Infantry attacked on the 29th as well. The regiment pushed against the Germans along a line running from Montfaucault village to moulin Moyard to the northeast, and from there on a southeast running line towards Seychelles. Here, too, the regimental commander had to combine his 1st and 3rd battalions due to heavy casualties, and they were relieved that night by the French 333rd Infantry Regiment. The attack continued the next morning. 3rd Battalion of the 371st attacked Trier Farm. As they rushed across open fields, they outran their own support artillery, and the German artillery pounded them, until they were close on the farm complex. 2nd Battalion, in support of the 3rd, then had to pass through the rain of shells and gas. Frank Washington, an enlisted man in Bravo Company, 371st Infantry, related his experiences after the fighting. His account can be best placed during the dates he gave of the 29th and 30th of September, as there are accounts of the men of the 372nd supposedly shooting down a German plane with concentrated rifle fire that day. The inconsistency comes from the fact that he was with B Company, and B Company would not have been part of the 3rd Battalion. Perhaps the manpower situation was so confused and fluid that Washington simply attached himself to 3rd Battalion as they were the only Americans he could locate. Said Washington, I went over the top in the fighting on September 29th and 30th. We advanced after the usual barrage had been laid down for us. We went up to the Germans, and my platoon found itself under the fire of three machine guns. One of these guns was in front and running like a mill race. The other two kept a piling into us from the flanks, and the losses were mounting. We got the front one. Its crew surrendered, and we stopped. The other guns kept right on going but we got them too. It was while we were attacking the guns on our flanks that I was wounded. Ordinary bullets are bad enough, but the one that hit me was an explosive bullet. That's me, sir, every time. 
When things are coming, I am sure to get my share of them. I certainly did get my share. While I was knocked down, it was safer to stay down. Those machine guns kept right on pumping. Not the ones we captured, but others. The wind they stirred up around your face kept you cool all the time. I finally started back, but found myself in a German barrage. It was shrapnel in front of me and machine guns in back of me. I lay right down and had a heart-to-heart chat with St. Peter. I never expected to get home again. Casualties mounted, and the Americans had to pull back when German fire simply became too intense. Doughboys were left bleeding in the fields before the farm, but a private Junius Diggs of Company G repeatedly went out into the fields to bring back wounded fellow soldiers. Despite the extreme danger, he did this repeatedly until every wounded man was back behind American lines. Private Diggs' actions earned him not only a Distinguished Service Cross from the U.S. Army, but a French Croix de Guerre with palm and the Médaille Militaire, a medal rarely bestowed on enlisted soldiers in the French Army. Trier Farm fell in the afternoon, but casualties were so heavy that the remains of the three attacking companies were grouped into one. The 371st 3rd Battalion lost 14 officers of 21 in the action, and Company Commander Lieutenant Herbert Morris later commented that, quote, The Allied Army that afternoon, to me, was a sadly shattered G Company, with only Lieutenant Spencer and our little bunch to help me fight the Central Powers, unquote. To the right, the 161st continued the attack as well, with the three regiments of the French division attacking in echelon. The combined 1st and 2nd Battalion of the 369th was in the middle, aiming towards Rosier Farm, northeast of Sechaux. They advanced under heavy fire, as the slowly retreating Germans demanded a heavy price for any ground they had to give up. The Rosier Farm complex sits on the northern edge of a small wood, To approach it from the southwest would mean going through the wood to get to it. The men of the 369th broke into the woods and came up against several machine gun nests and heavy, well-aimed rifle fire. A two-hour firefight followed, with casualties piling up as the shattered wood offered little cover to the attacking troops. Major Little pulled his doughboys out so the French could soak the wood with artillery. Captain David L'Esperance came up mid-afternoon with the 144 officers and soldiers in his command, all that remained of the 3rd of the 369th. The 369th was by this point down to under 600 effective men, and new orders were issued by Colonel Hayward to continue the attack on Rosier Farm. Major Little requested tank or artillery support to clear the woods. Otherwise, Little said in a message back to the colonel, the 15th New York will be a memory. The French artillery came in on the wood, all six rounds. Not 600 or 6,000, but six shells. It was ludicrous. A short while later, a runner came through, with the message for the 369th to remain where they were. Relief by the French 363rd Infantry Regiment was on the way. 
The Poilus came in at 1 a.m., and the Harlem Hellfighters were so exhausted they simply stayed with the French and fell asleep on the spot. The next morning, the 363rd, after a pounding of the woods by French artillery, assaulted the wood and finished the 369th's mission. Rosier Farm fell, and the war kept grinding forward. The American regiments, after five days of continuous operations, were at or nearing the limits of combat effectiveness. The 369th was out, having given an outstanding account of itself again on the battlefield. The Carolina draftees of the 371st were relieved at Trier Farm on the 1st of October, too. Civilians, just months before, these men had given no less than a solid battle record as well, and they had left the French countryside littered with their dead and wounded. Per E.J. Scott's The American Negro in the World War, 1,065 men out of 2,384, quote, actually engaged, unquote, had become casualties, mostly in the period between the 26th and 29th of September. Relieving the 371st was the 372nd, set to take part in new attacks as ordered by the 157th Division's Brigadier General Goybet. The Red Hand Division was to take the villages of Montois and Chalorange. Montois was a key German rail hub and supply depot for the area. The 2nd Moroccan Division was to seize the Croix de Sodan Heights north of the neighboring Marvaux village first securing the left flank for the 372nd's attack. The Moroccans were relieved by the French 120th Division the next day, and the 120th took on the mission of taking Croix de Sodan. They attacked late on the morning of the 2nd, but could not clear the high ground. Mistaking a signal rocket as their sign to go, the American 372nd, and French 333rd regiments launched their own attacks towards Montois and Chalorange. A wall of German machine gun and artillery ground the attack to a standstill 800 meters away from Montois, where the Germans were frantically evacuating all the supplies stored there. During this attack, another NCO stepped up and filled the gap. Sergeant William Craigler took over the remnants of his company when all of his officers were down and out of the fight. For his bravery and dedication to his mission, Craigler would be awarded the French Croix de Guerre during the war, and post-war, he would receive a late battlefield promotion to captain in his Maryland National Guard. The Doughboys and Poilus had to dig in now and wait for the 120th Infantry Division to clear the Croix de Sodin. Over the next two days, attacks on that piece of terrain were rebuffed with heavy fire from the Germans. It was during this time that Marshal Ferdinand Foch, Supreme Commander of the Allied Armies, delivered some harsh words to his countrymen. All along the Western Front, the French Army's advance in the Allied counteroffensives was nothing short of abysmal to him. In Flanders, the British and the Belgians had pushed forward 14 kilometers, past the old Ypres battlefields, in just three days. French units there halted their advance after two days. 
In the Sonkenton area, British Army Commander General Sir Douglas Haig complained that the French were hanging back, in his own words. In Soissons, the French 10th Army advanced because the Germans were pulling out of the Soissons area. General Henri Gohot and his French 4th Army also came in for criticism. Gohot's troops had pushed forward 12 kilometers since the 26th of September, capturing thousands of German prisoners and war materiel. This wasn't good enough for the dynamo that was Foch. He wanted action, he wanted relentless pursuit of the enemy, and he wanted it everywhere, at all times. Foch sent a nasty gram to General Philippe Pétain, commander of the French army. Yesterday, Foch wrote, 3 October, we witnessed a battle that was not commanded, a battle that was not pushed, a battle that was not brought together, and in consequence, a battle in which there was no exploitation of the results obtained. It should not escape your notice that the considerations I have identified with regard to the 4th Army apply to several other French units. The 372nd continued holding their new line throughout that time, and on the 5th, the Germans even launched a counterattack against them. The Black Doughboys held their line through the attack and continued holding the line until they were relieved on the 7th of October. These American men, too, gave a full and powerful account of themselves on the battlefield. With their relief, this sector of the Champagne Front reverted to French forces. The 4th Army kept pushing on in loose coordination with the American 1st Army to its right, which we know was also slogging up a hard road. A communique from the Red Hand Division applauded the men of the 372nd and how they, quote, gave proof during its first engagement of the finest qualities of bravery and daring, which are virtues of assaulting troops, unquote. These men had, quote, dashed with superb gallantry and admirable scorn of danger to the assault of a position continuously defended by the enemy, taking it by storm under an exceptionally violent machine gun fire, continued the progression in spite of enemy artillery fire and very severe losses. They made numerous prisoners, captured cannons, machine guns, and important war material, unquote. With the relief of the 372nd, the three regiments of the 93rd Division operating with the French 4th Army had been relieved and sent rearward for rest and recuperation. They would soon be transferred to the quiet Vosges sector, where they would spend the last weeks of the war. Between the 26th of September and the 7th of October, the last day the 372nd was in the front line, the three regiments of the 93rd we've discussed this episode suffered a combined total of 2,500 casualties. Remember, the 93rd Division of the AEF was given a provisional designation as it was an incomplete division. It contained only the four infantry regiments that made up the core of an American infantry division and none of the accompanying artillery, supply, and medical units that formed around the ground pounders. 
Because of this, the August 31, 1918 division rolls showed only 11,487 men in the ranks, unlike the other massive American divisions that clocked in at 28,000 soldiers. So, of the three regiments attached to the French 4th Army, they accounted for something around a 28% casualty rate. Please note that we're not taking into account the casualties of the 370th Infantry off on the Oise-N front, which would drive the percentage even higher. French opinion on the African-American troops can be illustrated by the fact that already in June 1918, during the crisis of German reach on the Western Front, the French asked the AEF for all the African-American regiments they could get. After the Champagne fighting, the 369th Infantry was awarded the Croix de Guerre as a unit citation. The 371st and 372nd received unit citations of the Croix de Guerre with Palm. Individual Croix de Guerre awards were handed out to dozens, if not hundreds, of worthy black doughboys. Upon awarding the Croix de Guerre with Palm, to the 371st, General Gorbet of the 157th DI stated, They have scattered their dead without counting, and the view of the battlefield is more eloquent than any report. He could easily have spoken the same for the other regiments of the 93rd Division. These black doughboys had come to the ranks because they had either been called to do so by their government or they had already volunteered beforehand. In either case, these men served because they loved their country and considered their country's struggle against the imperialism and militarism of the German Second Reich to be their own struggle as well. They also hoped to once again prove themselves above the crushing racism and dehumanization that kept a stranglehold on African Americans' aspirations of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In episode 55, we covered the story of the 368th Infantry at Binaville, an African-American infantry regiment that formed part of the other segregated African-American division in the AEF, the 92nd Buffalo Division. Poorly trained and poorly equipped, the 368th Infantry had disintegrated under the strain of heavy combat against a well-entrenched and world-class fighting enemy army. Just a few miles east, an entire infantry division of white soldiers also collapsed under the same strain, but never received the same indelible stain this unfortunate regiment received. Despite the battle honors the black doughboys of the 93rd Division earned in Champagne and other points on the Western Front, the performance of the 368th was used as the lodestone of African-American performance in the Great War. Edward M. Kaufman stated the situation well in his book, The War to End All Wars, The American Military Experience in World War I. Quote, Minds were made up. In the future, the whites would emphasize the failure of the 368th in the Argonne, and forget the achievements of the four separate Negro infantry regiments. On the very days in late September that the 368th had its difficulties, 
the Negroes in the 369th, 370th, 371st, and 372nd were carrying out successfully their missions in general attacks with the French in Champagne and the Oise-Ennes sectors, and the 378th was officered largely by Negroes. The French praised these regiments, but white Americans chose to remember the 368th. The Negroes who had hoped that the war would give them an opportunity to demonstrate their loyalty and to bolster their appeal to the whites for reforms were disappointed. The wall of prejudice was too high. Even well-meaning Northerners could not rise above stereotypes. On July 26, 1918, an editorial writer on the Milwaukee Sentinel, when he praised two of the separate Negro infantry regiments, wrote, Those two American-colored regiments fought well, and it calls for special recognition. Is there no way of getting a cargo of watermelons over there? Too few whites grasped the vision which Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois described the month after the war ended. We did love our country because we deemed it capable of realizing our dreams and inspiring the greater world. All loved and loved passionately, not America, but what America might be, the real America, as we sometimes said, unquote. The men of the 93rd Division proved themselves more than capable fighters and innovative combat leaders as well. When officers fell dead and wounded, NCOs like Sergeant Kreigler and even lower enlisted men like Private Braxton did not hesitate to take charge and call out, follow me, to the soldiers around them. They continued the mission in ones and twos when that was all that was left. They showed the German Frontschwein just who the American soldier was, and the Germans would not forget it. The performance of the Black Doughboys in the 93rd and 92nd Divisions, despite the insistence of detractors who constantly pointed to the unfortunate debacle of the 368th Infantry, laid the foundation stones for future progress in desegregation of the armed forces, and for the overall civil rights struggle to come. To paraphrase the well-known 1918 poster by E.G. Rhenish, the African-American man was no slacker. Questions, comments, or concerns? Please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.